0: But first, we're going to hear the last uh, three set of papers, which uh, I'm very excited about. Um, but the first one will be by Pascal Cognier, who completed a degree at the École des Études in Paris under the supervision of Louis Marin, and his doctorate right here in Oxford uh, in the Department of History of Art under Francis Haskell. He has written extensively on the history of photography, the history of collections, and on the historiography of art history. One of his many recent publications is La République de l'œil, l'expérience de l'art au siècle des lumières. And he teaches at the uh, University of Neuchâtel in uh, Switzerland, and at present holds the very prestigious professorship of the Musée du Louvre, the so called Cher du Louvre. Today, the title of his talk is Archiving Royal Heirlooms the publication of the crown treasures of the Galerie uh, d'Apollon in the Louvre and its materiality. Pascal. First of all, a, a great thank you to Geraldine, to Deborah, and to Costanza for this wonderful conference. Uh, as a great fan of Ruskin, I relished the privilege of uh, living in the Christchurch for three days because it was, of course, Ruskin's college when we were the students. Uh, a huge thank you for this wonderful experience. On March the 1st, 1878, the first installment of a very expensive publishing enterprise saw the light of day in Paris. Entitled The Trésor Artistique de la France, it was divided into 12 parts, presented in light blue portfolios, as you see them here. It offered the best colored reproductions of the crowned heirlooms exhibited in the Galerie d'Apollon of the Louvre. The cost of this first series, 1,000 gold francs, was astronomical. For that price, at that time, you could buy a small house in the French province, or you know, as a farmer from Normandy, you could buy a large bull for that price. <laughs> the driving force behind this project was a publisher, Paul Dalloz, the powerful director of the Moniteur Universel. The man had connections and money to spend. He appointed Leon Vidal, the inventor of a costly photochromic process, head of the workshop responsible for the publication of the Trésor. An important problem soon became apparent. How could the publishers take photographs in the Louvre itself? The direction of the Beaux-Arts was rabidly opposed to the idea of letting them work in the Louvre. From the Second Empire onwards, the curators and the Comte de Nieuverkert, the head of museums, barred any camera from the galleries, as they believed that photographers were bound to damage precious works of art in the museum. They also believed that the only way to reproduce works of art was engraving or etching. During the Second Empire, a great artist, Jean-Jules Ferdinand Jacquemart, was even allowed to have his own workshop next to the Galerie d'Apollon. He mocked the shortcomings of photography and took pleasures in producing very polished etchings, as you will see here, where the shiniest objects of the gallery reflects the window of his workshop, because he's here, uh, the uh, piece here on the right, you see actually the window of his workshop and the artist uh, himself, a kind of signature which highlighted a virtuosity which was still beyond the reach of photography at the time. Dallow's aim in undertaking such a project was clear. As the president of the jury of the Union Centrale des Beaux-Arts Appliqués à l'Industrie, he was appalled by the low aesthetic quality of manufactured goods in France. This, diagnostic, this diagnosis was not particularly original. It was a great obsession of all European governments after the Great Exhibition of 1851. Dallos thought that perfect reproductions of the most precious objects among the royal rooms would serve a pedagogical purpose. As for Vidal, he just wanted to be Jacquemart on his own ground. The colored photograph you see here greatly impressed amateurs <coughs> at the time. Léon Vidal, the son, the son of industrialists from the south of France, had developed a technique which allowed for a perfect transfer of the photographic image to a lithographic stone. For each colored surface, a corresponding lithographic stone was produced. Vidal did not want to use yellow or gray colors in order to produce the effect of gold or silver, as it was commonly done at the time. A sheet of real gold or of silver was laid on paper, which was then printed on with a gelatinous translucent ink which let the metal sheet shine through. The effect was strikingly beautiful and gave depth, a body, to the object represented. But in his enthusiasm, Vidal made somehow excessive use of color, as you can see here. (laughs) He could not resist brightening the background of his images to such an extent that on such plates, sometimes, they distract the eye, making it even difficult to focus on the object represented. I shall now reflect on the structure of this publication, a structure which shows that the author of the trésor artistique programmed its use and more especially the way in which amateur could archive it. Each portfolio contains one installment, that is, a series of colored photographs. Each photograph is accompanied <coughs> by a, text, uh, a textual commentary discussing the object represented. The object was not described, since the authors of the text say that the photograph spoke for itself. Each image is carefully mounted on cardboard and framed in a white passe-partout, as is called in French. The lines surrounding the window are printed, but the golden rim is applied by a hand. At the foot of the plate, the names of the printing house, as well as that of the head of the photographic workshop, appear on each side. The authors of the portfolio clearly wanted to highlight the artistic value of their reproductions, which were framed like uh, precious drawings by old masters. The inscriptions imitate prints which bore the name of the artist and of the engraver. Vidal was very keen to prove that a photograph should be granted a copyright as it it was an original creation, uh, an uh, an object of artistic interest, uh, like any other artwork. In 1896, he even defended this idea in a publication on the subject. <coughs> Here you can see the portfolio in which all this uh, uh, text and uh, prints uh, were put. At the same time, Dallos did not want to produce a book, but a series of loose photochromes with the accompanying text. His idea was to kickstart a series that would encompass not only the heirlooms of the French crown, which were housed in the Galerie d'Apollon in the Louvre, but all the major artworks of the Middle Ages and of the Renaissance on French territory. Some very rich collectors, like the brother uh, Ducuy, were contacted and they agreed to have some of their possessions reproduced in the same manner. Here is one of the superb enables uh, which were in the uh, collections. of Auguste, one of the two brothers. Scholars also, like Eugène Huchet, were persuaded to use the Vidal process to convey the exceptional beauty of the Plantagenet enamel, Huchet used the same structure as Vidal, even if his dissertation on the enamel exceeds slightly the two or three pages of commentary, which are normally to be seen in the trésor artistique. Dallour and Vidal publication, in effect, is difficult to define. It is neither a notebook nor a recueil, even if it resembles both. In my book, La République de l'œil, I have analyzed the complex, the complex birth of the art book. Unlike my former doctoral supervisor, Francis Haskell, whose book, The Painful Birth of the Art Book, is well known, I do not believe that the recueil is the first form of the art book within a continuous historiographical model. Far from it. In fact, for me, the art book was created in reaction or even in opposition to the recueil. The philosopher John Locke, were the first scholar who provided a theoretical justification for the The way so in Oxford, in Christchurch, you know, the place where John Locke uh, lives. So uh, for me, it's a huge pleasure <laughs> <laughs> to, it, to say that. <laughs> As you can see here in this uh, uh, publication, which he did actually in French in the Bibliothèque Universelle in 1686, he tried to understand how an infinite number of data could be recorded in a manuscript bound like a book, that is, an finite repository of knowledge, and then retrieved at will. His solution was simple. The owner or compiler should divide the book into sections and then place any new element or fact into a section with the help of a very complex coded reference. In that way, a great number of data could be stored in the book over the course of time without threatening the order of knowledge. During the 17th and 18th centuries, Collectors who wanted to use their collection to produce a comprehensive model of the history of art created what I have called an instrumentarium, that is, an aggregation of manuscript notes, printed texts, images, originals, copies, all suitable for the storage of elements of this history of art. An instrumentarium of this kind was expensive and was condemned to remain available in only one copy, that of the collector. The collector made his own personalized book, so to speak. From Croissant to Seroux all attempts to produce an instrumentarium in multiple copies failed one after the other. These books were all too expensive, and their structure was highly impenetrable and ind- indigestible. Seroux's Histoire de l'art par les monuments 1810, 24, in six volume in folio, three for the text, three for the illustrations, what is so cumbersome that it is impossible to see an image and its corresponding text simultaneously. You need at least three tables to lay down the whole book. (laughs) In effect, readers like Stendhal recommended that one should use the plates as their repertory of images and forget altogether Seru's text. The art book proceeds completely differently it does not restrict itself to publishing the ordered view of a given collection or to furnishing the raw materials for historical discourse on art. In the art book, the text is a primary element and must propose a model of the development of art in history. The illustrations serve only to highlight the argument proposed by the text and are organized in a carefully ordered sequence. In France, the first writer able to understand this new model was Timothy Francillon, and by a twist of history, he is not even French, he was a Swiss citizen who lived in London. His histoire borrows his historiographical model from which he Storia Pittorica and is illustrated for the first time with prints after painting in his own collection. Up to the end of the 9th century, the French book trade could not choose between those two radically different options the art book and the recueil. As late as in the 70s, uh, René Menard, who produced the first French illustrated art historical manual, also republished Réveil's famous musée de peinture et de sculpture, a famous recueil in the form of a paper museum, which appeared uh, in the first edition uh, from 1828 to 33. In the field of the decorative arts, this problem became very acute during the 1860s for reasons that extended beyond the limits of the book trade. Unlike Great Britain, where the Kensington Museum, as well as the Crystal Palace, offered two brilliant examples of industrial museums, France had little to offer in that field, apart from the Musée de Cluny. Private collectors, on the other hand, were lobbying very hard for a national collection devoted to the industrial arts. In 1850, the sale of the famous de Bruges du Melin collection, certainly one of the most important group of masterpieces of industrial art in the, at the time in France, was seen as a great wasted opportunity. This is this collection which is published by Labarthe. The state did not purchase the collection, which has entirely dispersed at auction. But the nephew of de Bruges de Benil, Jules Labart, the author of this book here, wrote a catalog of this magnificent collection and prefaced it with a brilliant essay on the history of the decorative art in Europe from the Middle Ages to the end of the Renaissance. Labarthe had understood that he should not produce a recueil, as had, for example, Alexandre du Somnard in this publication devoted to his own collection now housed in the Musée de Cluny. But he should produce a catalogue raisonné of the collection and, separately, A historical discourse totally distinct from the collection. This essay by Labarthe, republished here, became a textbook on the decorative arts throughout the 19th century. In 1864 66, Labarthe enlarged the text and republished it as a book in six volumes, you have here, with colored illustrations after the objects, which by then were dispersed in several public and private collections. Rothschild, the, the Prince Saltikov, all uh, uh, the aristocracy in Europe, both uh, from that. It is clear that Labart wanted to produce an instrument that could create a scientific history of the decorative art whose real counterpart would be a national museum. This new science was based upon a serious exercise of connoisseurship, an intimate knowledge of the technical vocabulary necessary to describe objects, their topology, their materiality, and the techniques used for their making. The images were put to the service of this purpose. For the first time, Labart accomplished in this field what Francillon had achieved with the illustrated history of painting. During the Second Empire, the Louvre Museum understood the challenge posed by the Kensington Museum and started to acknowledge the industrial arts. The Sauvageau collection was donated in 1856 and duly exhibited in a set of rooms. After the death of this donator, it was merged with the collections of decorative art. But when Napoleon III acquired en bloc the Campana collection, several people in France hoped that this huge collection, where the industrial arts took pride of place, would form a French version of the Kensington Museum. The Louvre curators opposed this idea with all their energy, and they finally prevailed. The Campanat collection, you see here, and the objects were housed in the Louvre, but several of them were dispatched in the province, and the Musée Décoratif, <laughs> a private initiative, was founded in France and in Paris much later, in 1882. Within this context, the trésor artistique de la France should be viewed as a multifunctional apparatus. First, it was a set of plates, of beautiful plates, which were like works of art and had individual value. It was also a recueil which offered a vast documentation suitable for writing a history of the decorative art understood by now as an independent pursuit. But it also produced a paper museum for the decorative arts in a country that could not boast of a Kensington Museum. The individual plates could be admired individually by craftsmen eager to increase the formal quality of their wares. Ideally, over time, the publication would cover all the most beautiful specimens of decorative art in France, both in private and public hands. Any purchaser of this publication could thus arrange his own paper museum according to his wishes. But in order to understand the full implications of the trésor as a recueil, we now have to ask why the Galerie d'Apollon was selected as the first repository of <coughs> industrial arts in France. During the reign of Napoleon III, the crown heirlooms were exhibited in the Galerie d'Apollon of the Louvre. It belonged to the crown estate, not to the nation. It was the case for the whole Louvre Museum, actually. The Bonapartes were trying to cast themselves as a great dynasty in French history. Napoleon III was completing the Louvre, and he hoped to be remembered as a sovereign who had put the final touch to four centuries of labor carried out on the palace of the French kings. The crown heirlooms highlighted the continuity existing between the old monarchies and the Bonapartes, although the new dynasty owed everything to the French Revolution, as you know. In 1870, however, the Second empire had collapsed, and after the protracted struggle, the Republic imposed its rule in France by 1876. For the new regime, The royal heirlooms had become an embarrassment. And very quickly, some members of parliament toyed with the idea of selling all these treasures. In the end, they prevailed. And in 1887, a sizable group of the crown jewel were put to auction in the Louvre precincts. The sale was organized in the Louvre. Only a few of them could be secured for the the national collections as part of the national heritage. This is my contention that the publication of the Galerie d'Apollon was seen as an attempt to provide a new image of this object as specimen of the decorative arts. It was obvious for every French citizen at the time that many of these objects, like Charlemagne's sword, had been worn by the kings and by Napoleon I during the coronation ceremony, and that they had the deep, symbolical, almost magical value. But within the trésor artistique de la France, these objects were suddenly reduced to the status of artefacts belonging to the history of the industrial arts. Dallos and Vidal knew that these objects were under threat because of the deep royal symbolism attached to them. In a sense, the publication of this object may be seen as an attempt to justify their preservation in the national collections where they would serve as a document bearing witness to a past which was by now buried forever. Finally, I should come to back to the fact that Dallot saw the treasure as a teaching aid for French craftsmen, eager to improve the quality of French ware. By the end of the 1870s, French industry was resolutely modern inasmuch as it used modern technologies and a new division of labor that was as far removed as possible from the system of the old guilds. Unlike Great Britain, where the Kensington Museum exhibited all artefacts as well as contemporary works, the Louvre restricted for a long time its representation of the industrial arts to the top of the range produced between the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. This could be interpreted as an attempt to deny the impact of modern times on the production of artefacts and, simultaneously, to bury past techniques and craftsmanship in my magnificent maus- mausoleum, the Public Museum of the Louvre. In London, the Industrial Museum celebrated the versatility of forms, materials and techniques. In Paris, the Louvre, in a reaction libre, produced a totally different vision of the world of artifacts golden objects with royal provenance, with a dazzling effects were meant to stress the almost consubstantial unity between form, materiality, and techniques in France, as if nothing had changed since the French Revolution. In conclusion, I hope to have shown that the trésor artistique, like any publication illustrated with photographs during the ninth century, should be understood as an apparatus whose meaning and functioning may only be understood within the context of the book trades of the period, but also of the material as well as intellectual development of the art book. Here, epistemology meets the history of the material production of books and the history of culture in general. Because of its many uses for amateurs, for artists, for craftsmen, for art historians, this form is difficult to read today. Above all, the trésor artistique was trying to present photographs as works of art, but also, paradoxically, as objective records of objects. It was also trying to find its way between radically different book forms, which still vied for public attention of the time, the art book on one side and the recueil on the other side. As a result of these complex functionalities, the trésor artistique has been archived in very different ways, to the point that very few copies of this publication are complete. In other words, the trésor artistique fell the victim of its own functionalities. Thank you very much.